As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to yet another special closed season version of the Races Formula E podcast. Uh, joining me today, your host Andrew Vanderberg, is our intrepid Formula E correspondent Sam Smith, who's been on the road getting some special exclusive interviews for this uh, very special episode. So a quick intro to Sam before we then hand over and, and then play those interviews. So hi Sam, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Yeah, hello everyone. Um, I had a little trip to Monaco a couple of days ago to speak to James Rossiter team principal of Maserati MSG, and their new driver, who we won't spoil it. We're going to speak to him very shortly, although some of you will know by now that the news is broken. But uh, yeah, nice to see their new premises in Monaco. Strange to be at Monaco without a race on. It was all a bit all a bit odd with no barriers and you know trying to plot the racing lines around some of the track and so forth with, with loads of cars and bars and restaurants parked on them. But uh, yeah, a, a good day. And yeah. Um, that team is looking forward to the season and getting ready just a few weeks now to the pre-season test. So it's all all hands to the pump. Good stuff. Well, with no further ado, producer Johnny, cue the interview. So it's been a delight to have a look around the Maserati MSG base here in Monaco today. We're just a stone's throw from the casino and the uh, tip-top bar, which is the de facto headquarters of the race during the Epre weekend. Um, I'm here with James Rossiter, the boss, in his new office, the team have been here for just a matter of weeks i've had a tour looking um across the business and it looks a very fine establishment here we've got a, a driver in the loop simulator which uh, has been busy with uh, the new driver uh, jehan daruvela and we've also got max gunter been in the sim later on going through the the fine touches before the valencia pre-season test uh, next month so james um Thanks for welcoming me here today to the base of Maserati MSG. Good to see you. Um, Jehan, let's talk about him, this uh, this new signing for you. He's going to replace Edo Maltara next season. Talk to us about the the thinking of what, what's really a sort of end of era, in a sense, because Edo's been such a part of the fabric of this team. But we've got, we've got uh, fresh talent alongside Max Gunter for next season. Yeah, firstly, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for, for making the journey and coming to Monte Carlo. Um, yeah, our new driver. So uh, Formula E has been uh, fairly stagnant, I would say, with its driver pool over the over the years. 
And it's something that, uh, that we've been looking forward to, to bring in new young talent. I think that what we achieved also with Max last year showed that it's not just about the speed, it's about how you maximize the potential of a driver and how you can work with them. And this is something that we're looking forward to for the future. I believe that there's a huge amount of talent out there in these young drivers. And I think that, you know, Johan is a multiple race winner in Formula 2. He's proven he has the speed and the credibility to succeed. And, you know, all we can do is let him be judged on his results. In terms of managing what's happened in the off-season, there was the, the swirling um, activity in the driver market. There was so much going on. When was sort of the timeline of things set? Because obviously the season finished at the end of July. I imagine there was some holiday period. Was was it a case of end of August, September time when all the chess pieces started to to get aligned for you? No, it's something that was going on from uh, from a long time before then. Uh, already from sort of May, we were trying to understand where the market was. Obviously, we had a good upturn in in form and pace, and that really gave us a potential to look at multiple different options, uh, and then. You know, going with youth and uh, enthusiasm was was one of the key things. Uh, I think that uh, there's incredible amount of talent, as I said informally, but uh, how you can maximise that and how you can extract it in the future is is going to be an interesting one. We saw Edo pick up quite a bit last season. He got a good result in Rome, of course, but in terms of putting what he brought and invested into the team I know you've only been here for for a season but he's got a long history with Venturi and, and what has become MSG how, how do you appraise what he brought to the to the squad over those years yeah in, in the past he was uh, a formidable competitor he was um, you know when I was at DS Tachita he was hugely successful with uh, with Venturi and we fought with him a, a lot and he he had an amazing amount of success with the team before I arrived uh, Struggled a little bit to get up to speed with the with the Gen 3 car. Uh, but then also a huge amount of our upturn in performance did come from his hard work. And he really worked methodically through the, the problems to try to understand why we were struggling in the beginning and why we were making so many mistakes. And I can only thank him for his contribution for that. I think he was a huge part of this team. Uh, he definitely taught me a lot as well in my first year as a team principal, having to work with such an experienced driver uh, of a similar age as, as myself. And, you know, we formed quite a close bond in terms of he helped me understand more about the people inside the team because everyone was new to me 12 months ago. And, uh, yeah, I only have uh, gratitude uh, towards him. He's really helped me a lot and and I wish him really all the best for, for his future endeavours. You mentioned uh, new drivers on new blood in the championship and it looks like Jahan's going to be the only rookie who's going to race next season. You gave Felipe Drogovic a, a chance to test at, at Berlin and then again in Rome. He did a great job, impressed everybody, topped both of those sessions. Um, there was some anticipation that, that Felipe might come into Formula E, but it's, it's not going to happen just yet. What, what's the sort of latest um, in terms of the team relationship with Felipe, can you can you say what his plans might be for the future? Oh, certainly, I have a, I have a very close relationship with him. I think uh, you know we, we had him in the sim um, bef just before I arrived at the team uh, a year ago, and there were discussion with with him already to join us for the beginning of of Gen Three. Uh, he's an exceptional talent. There's no hiding that. I mean, he's one of the most talented drivers that I've seen. To be perfectly honest, he has the right work ethic. I think he's still very focused on Formula One and I was very clear with him that you know, having been in that position myself as a young driver, I was never going to get in the way of that. 
uh, when his mindset shifts, um, you know, if he doesn't get his race seat in Formula One that he he's hoping for, then uh, I'd very much like to have him in in a car and racing for me at some point later on. You've been part of many teams over the years as a driver and manufacturers, and it's always a juggling act for a driver's career to understand where to go at the op optimum time and which car to be and which team to be with. Did you understand Felipe's sort of rationale of, of being in the Formula One paddock and holding out for, for an opportunity there? Of course. I, I think, you know, every young driver has to follow his dream. Um, if you don't do that, you're not being true to yourself and you're not being true to your, your mission statement, why he set out, why his family set out, you know, the goals that they have uh, and that they're trying to achieve with his career. And, and I fully respect those. Uh, I think you have to give it everything that you can to succeed in this sport. He's clearly doing that. And, uh, and I hope that he gets a couple of more outings in FP1. And, and I honestly hope that he gets a chance to, to showcase his talent in Formula 1 because uh, the talent is definitely there. Let's get back to the team. Obviously, last season was, a, uh, to use a football cliche, was a, very much a season of two halves. Obviously, a tough start to, um, to your tenure as team principal but then it picked up from sort of Berlin onwards in particular and we saw Max get a handful of podiums and that that amazing weekend in in Jakarta how are you sort of now the dust has settled James how are you appraising what was achieved last season particularly in the second part and also tell us how how tough it was in that first part as well looking back on it I certainly look back at, at, with a smile on my face at the beginning because those hard times shaped us and that's what empowered us and enabled us to have the great second half. It taught me a huge amount. It was brutal. Uh, some of the things that I went through, uh, the lows were very, very low. Trying to pick the team up from some of those difficult situations where we were destroying cars and, and missing races where Max missed a race in, in Riyadh. It was, you know, the, the time frame and the hard work that went on from the, the men and women in the team was uh, just incredible, the amount of effort that went in. And then when we saw the upturn in performance and we managed to keep the cars out of the wall, to be perfectly honest, and we could deliver our potential, then the performance just got better and better and better. And then, as you said, we arrived in Jakarta. Um, Max showed exactly the reason why we put the trust in him to race for us last year. He just delivered in every session. It was one of the most impressive weekends I've ever seen from anyone informally. He was on top of his game every single lap. He didn't make a single mistake. And uh, I think that we as a team didn't quite give him the right support to win the first race in Jakarta. And I know that certainly speaking from myself, I stayed awake almost the entire night on Saturday night reviewing why we didn't win that first race. And then we managed to execute Sunday's race to perfection. So yeah, it was uh, definitely a season of two halves. But the lessons learned in the first half created the second half. And, and looking ahead to 24, um, obviously the set homologation, there's, there's no structural change in, in what you're running as a, as a car, as a, a powertrain. What are the areas you're looking at? I mean, everybody mentioned software and it's this kind of almost a dark art really in, in Formula E. No one, you know, the, the, the lay person doesn't quite um, fully understand exactly how the updates come. Is that the, still the key area of where you can advance your uh, your pace and obviously your efficiency during the races next season? Yeah, Formula E is really a dark art, as you said, with this, with the software. You, there's so much potential inside the systems uh, and the control that we can activate, I would say, over the powertrains. And especially with, you know, this Gen 3 car, you've got 
your FPK, so your front powertrain and your RPK, your rear powertrain, how they work together, how these systems interact, how they interact with the driver's requests. Everything is so intricate. And these, when you're looking for tenths of a second, and I mean, a tenth is a huge amount, as you've seen informally, sometimes the top four are, are separated by a tenth. And giving the driver that little bit of extra confidence, finding out that he can rely on the systems that little bit more can really, you can extract one or two tenths. So I think the the dark art of the software is definitely a key to improving our performance. Next season, obviously as a customer team, you, you work with, with DS in a sense, although Maserati is a standalone manufacturer. Um, I had a good chat with Thomas Chavouche, somebody you know very well from your days at, at DS Techita back in Rome. And he actually did admit that the... Um, the sort of symbiotic relationship between the Stellantis motorsport groups will only get stronger and then he's working to do that. That's his job. What do you make of, it's a company you know well, as I said, where do you think that can improve in terms of how you can develop a bit more with, with DS? I mean, is there a, I know there's, there are strategies in place, but going for next season, are there areas that you're looking at James to, to improve the, the, the flow of, um, of, of information or data or, or just working together in different ways? Yeah. So I started working with Slantis, uh, in the development of the season five car. So the gen two car before, before when the relationship of DS Techita began. So I have a great relationship with Thomas. He was the engineer that I worked with when I was driving uh, back then. We've definitely tried to integrate the information uh, coming both ways from Stellantis more. We've tried to have more of an open book. I think any, as with any new relationship, you find in the first year uh, how we can improve. I think there were definitely things that, that could have been improved. There was probably a lack of openness sometimes where there shouldn't you know there should have been a bit more trust and being able to to see that and adapt to it i think as as thomas said to you it's it's only going to make us stronger and having this level of trust also and and having stellantis seen what maserati msg can do as a team and where our strengths are in comparison to the ds penske team really has given us also a stronger position within the stellantis group I mean, everything was so rushed last season with a Gen 3 car. So many challenges and issues to, to iron out. Every team was doing that right up until the green flag in, in Mexico and beyond, actually. I mean, where are you feeling that the team and the drivers are with this this new model now? Do, do you feel as though going into this season, will we a much more settled period of understanding what you can get out of the car and how you can maximize it over a, over a season? I think it wasn't just the actual Gen 3 car itself. It was uh, the style of racing that we saw. You know, this, this Peloton style of racing where people were trying to save energy to reach an energy target where you could try and sprint away from the others, where you'd be less vulnerable to overtaking. This came as a bit of a surprise to everybody. And trying to get our head around that with the complexities of the Gen 3 car made it a tough, you know, a tough start of the season, I think, for for people to really get on top of. I feel that now a lot more of the teams have understood the potential of this. Some drivers also were much better at it than others. There were some drivers that didn't qualify well, but were always at the front, uh, namely Nick Cassidy. Managed to pull off some uh, remarkable races where, where he would have a, you know, a fairly you know, just bland qualifying and then start of the race, he was right there at the front 
playing the peloton perfectly, dictating the pace and then executing a, a great result. So there's still things to learn, I think, from the driver's side as well. I think there's a lot of things that all the teams can be doing in the simulators over the winter to try and, and help that. But then obviously we've got some, uh, the potential of some different race formats as well for this season. So there's going to be, I think, another, another period of learning coming up. And what of, what of that, uh, James, that, that different format? Because we're going to see the attack charge in some form or fashion. It's not absolutely um, public yet how they're going to do that, but there's going to be a mandatory pit stop of some description. Thoughts on that? I mean, you've been in plenty of championships where you've gone through pit stops, but not quite like this. This is something a bit unique. Yeah, I mean, the proof will be in the pudding, as they say. It's It's going to be an interesting one. I think it's... Yeah, I have some reservations on it, to be perfectly honest. Uh, but then I also understand why the promoters are trying to to have that in the races. I think that it will change completely the dynamic of, of some of the events, just based on circuit layout, on lap time versus pit stop time, pit stop windows, potential to go a lap down. Uh, there's, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that can happen in, in those situations. So, oh, yeah, we're, we're just going to have to wait and see, to be honest, with that one. Okay, no, we, we've been, um, you've given me, you've been good enough to give me a look around the facilities. It's, um, it's a really impressive place. You've only been here a few weeks. Uh, the driver in the loop simulator, um, Jehan and, and Max are in it, as I said earlier today. Tell us about how crucial a piece of kit like that is. I mean, lots of racing teams have seven post rigs, they have wind tunnels, model shops, all kinds of different tools, but this is absolutely integral into getting the best out of Formula E cars, isn't it? It is, yeah, and it, it comes back to the software. Uh, we're able to run all of our software inside our, our simulator in our, in our deal and accurately give a representation of, of cause and effect for all the changes that, that we're making. We can spend time developing uh, new software making sure that all the debugging is done so that software is reliable when we when we arrive in Valencia. And then more importantly for us, to be perfectly honest, we're, we've got a very aggressive development program with, with Jahan. Uh, we're working a lot with him over this month, build, building up to, to Valencia, where we're going through all the different circuits, circuit knowledge, style of racing, style of driving, uh, difficulties that can be faced informally. Uh, as you know, some, some races we have it where the radio drops out, and the driver's going to have to rely on all of the systems inside the car. He's going to have to have a deeper understanding of, of what's being shown to him on the steering wheel and really understand how he can work with his tools that he has inside the car to maximize the potential, even if we lose contact with him. Uh, so there's a huge amount of work that goes on in the, in the simulator. And it's, it, you know, it's incredibly rewarding to see in the end. And also it keeps everyone sharp. Uh, the engineers are in there, the drivers are in there. It keeps us all race sharp before we arrive in Mexico in January. And do you have, James, as an ex-driver yourself, do you have a bit of, um, not sympathy, that's probably the wrong word to use with racing drivers, but um, do you have some empathy as to what rookies go through? I mean, you, you were one yourself. You, you, did a, a, you, didn't, uh, you didn't race in Formula E, but you did sessions and you did some, a lot of testing. But in terms of the challenge that Formula E presents. I mean, you know, we talk about IndyCar, about the brawny challenge of how you got to wrestle the cars. Endurance racing, you've got so many different variables and you're sharing a car with two other guys or girls. And you've now got uh, Formula E, which is this kind of colossal mental challenge 
on mostly street tracks. I mean, do you empathise with drivers coming fresh in and, and having to perform straight away? I think as long as you give them a fair target, it can be okay. I think that's the biggest thing you need to do. You need to see with any rookie coming into Formula E, they have to be judged on their results, but also they have to be given time to learn because it is incredibly complex. It's the most difficult championship, I believe, in the world. You have to have a very high mental aptitude. You have to be able to understand so many different details of the car, the style of racing. There's zero room for errors, as, as we saw from the beginning of last season. The walls are right there. You have massive amounts of pressure. You have a compact day with an entire event. You have to perform from seven o'clock in the morning till four o'clock in the afternoon to perfection in every session if you want a good weekend. And the pressure is huge on these, these new drivers. And it's why we've seen such a stagnant driver pool in Formula E. The drivers that have proved themselves, you know, people are happy to rely on them. So it's going to be an exciting time for Jahan. It's an exciting time for me to try and guide him through as well. Uh, it was exciting last year with Max to see how amazing he became in the second half of the season. And I really hope that Max can also set a great example to Jahan and, and, and lead the team and also share a fair amount of information with Jahan and share his, you know, his pitfalls and also his wins and how, how he went about it in, uh, in his difficult moments. Final question, and it's one you're going to be asked ad nauseum once we get to Valencia, so I'll get it in first. Aims and objectives for, for 24, what would you like to see Maserati MSG achieving next season? Building on the second half of the season that we had is, is the biggest key. I uh, have two clear goals. One is Max to be continuously fighting for the top six. And the other one is for Jahan to start fighting for the top 10. And I think going into the season with those goals and having that realization of that's where we should be, I genuinely believe if Max can finish in the top six uh, most weekends, he's going to be fighting for the championship. Uh, I think he's shown that, that he can do that. And I think that we've shown as a team that we can do that. We, know, we now know what we need to deliver for him. Uh, and he knows what we expect also from, from his performances. So I think, I think they're fairly realistic goals. And if you go in with those ones, you know, you'll, you'll have the odd event where I hope where similar to Jakarta, where you'll turn up and you'll have a huge amount of performance and you have to maximize those weekends. There'll be weekends where we fight for podiums and then there'll be weekends where we struggle for the top six, but that's, uh, that's okay. That's, uh, that's the nature of Formula E. Well, best of luck to you and the team, James. Thanks for joining us on the Formula E podcast thanks to the magisterial Liz Brooks for organising and uh, yeah good luck for next season thank you thank you very much so having spoken to the boss James Rossiter we've now got our new driver with the Maserati MSG squad it's Jehan Daruvala great to see you Jehan we're familiar with seeing you in in different overalls of course after the last year uh, working as reserve uh, for the Mahindra team but a surprise to some that you've now joined the Maserati MSG team. Congratulations, first of all, and, and tell us how you're looking forward to your first race seat in Formula E. Yeah, thank you very much. I mean, uh, firstly, it's my it's the first professional step in my career. And, uh, you know, to be part of Maserati, uh, such a prestigious team, and to be uh, a Formula E driver, it means a lot to me. Uh, yeah, I can't wait to... To get started in Valencia and then uh, onward to the season, you know it's going to be my rookie season. Uh, there's uh, top teams, top drivers, so it's going to be very difficult. But uh, I'm going to put all my effort in to deliver good results that I know I'm capable of doing. 
Tell us a bit about the process of where you were in your career heading into this new deal with Maserati MSG. You've obviously done a number of seasons in Formula 2, had some success there. You've got a what you call probably a traditional single-seater, junior single-seater career. But what was the thinking during last season about where you wanted to be in 24? Yeah, uh, so uh, obviously I've done a few years in F2. Uh, even though I went this year in F2 knowing that I wouldn't uh, go to F1, my my focus was to do a good season and look for uh, good seats in, in Formula E. You know, in racing, some doors open, uh, some doors close. And, uh, you know, luckily for me and my managers, uh, you know, this door opened for us. Uh, like I said earlier, it's a huge opportunity for me. Uh, you know, the team has done very well. They're a top team in Formula E and, and a massive brand. So, uh, you know, I am very excited to start this journey together with, with Maserati and hopefully, uh, you know, we can have a good season together. You spent some time around the paddock over the last 12 months or so. You must have absorbed quite a lot of, of knowledge and just seeing kind of from, from afar a little bit, you did have that time at Berlin, of course, in the cockpit. But how useful was it just looking and observing and seeing how Formula E works and spending time with the race drivers at Mahindra next year to, to understand just what it takes to, to be competitive in Formula E? No, I think I definitely learned a lot. Also, I was uh, obviously a reserve driver at Mahindra and working together with Oliver and, and Lucas, both very experienced drivers. So, And they were both very good to me, open to me. If I had any questions, they were always there to answer them for me. So, no, I learned a lot during the year. Uh, Formula E is a whole different championship compared to you know what I'm used to in F3 and F2. So uh, everything... It's new to me, apart from like the car having a steering wheel and four wheels, you know, everything else is kind of new. So I was learning all, all throughout the year. Uh, and now you yeah, had Maserati, obviously, all teams have different uh, systems, different ways of working. So again, uh, a lot of it's going to be new to me. So uh, that's why I'm here right now in Monaco for a month before the test, just to uh, be at the office as much as possible uh, and, and get up to speed as quickly as I can. You've already got a great friend here at the MSG team in the simulator, which is going to be a really uh, key friend for you over the next coming months before we go to Mexico City. You're going to be in it later on this afternoon. I mean, you've got experience of these, obviously, through your professional career, but in Formula E, it's absolutely specifically integral to how you go racing uh, in these E-Pre's. How much are you having to soak up right now in terms of looking to, towards Valencia because as well as a really concentrated period of preparation for you, th there isn't a great deal of testing other than those days in Spain and in, in, in next month. So how are you structured, structuring it in your mind to get this preparatory stage underway? I mean, uh, yeah, we're going to be doing as much prep as possible. Also, uh, me, I've, I've told the team as well that uh, as much as they want me here, I'll be here and... So the plan is to like do all the tracks, cover all of the all of the bases, even before we hit Valencia, go through uh, all the systems, uh, you know, all the steering wheel settings, everything. So when I hit the track in Valencia, we're not wasting time on on the stuff that I should already know, and uh, you know that's going to be the priority for the next month. So to get me up to speed technically and uh, you know adapting to what I need to, and then of course driving the car is is going to be a different uh, ball game, but. Again, well, when I'm there, I'm I'll be used to all the settings and everything that I that I that I need to know of. So, yeah, I'm uh, looking forward to it. Like I said, it's the start of my professional journey, and I'm looking forward to it uh, a lot. There are probably some people out there who are maybe surprised a little bit that you're you're not with Mahindra. It seems like a 
to some a natural fit in the sense of the, the nationality, obviously, and the, and the links you've got with with the uh, the country of where Mahindra comes from, India. But just tell us a little bit about what you learned there and how you came to the decision to get a race seat with Maserati. No, honestly, uh, I did uh, have, uh, like I said, I was a reserve driver. It was my first year around in the Formula E paddock. So uh, I learned a lot. Like I said, uh, all all the teams in this paddock uh, have their own history. And yeah, me being an Indian driver, driving for an Indian team, I guess at that time was the what people thought was the obvious option. Uh, you know, but for me, at the end, I'm I'm a racing driver. I want to uh, drive wherever I have the opportunity, and uh, you know, Maserati gave me a very good opportunity. So, uh, I grabbed it with both hands, together with uh, me, my managers, and Maserati. We came to a, a good a good deal. So, in the end, I'm happy to be here. Uh, you know, and I'm looking forward to being in a competitive car and scoring good results. I mean, without doubt, Formula E is the probably the most concentrated pound for pound talent wise um strongest pool of, of drivers on any one grid uh, in world motorsport certainly i mean how how do you feel about going toe-to-toe with some of the more more experienced drivers who've obviously been in this for for year in year out and actually do you take a bit of um a bit of positivity from some of the rookies we've seen recently sasha fenestras Jake Hughes and of course Jake Dennis before that and that must give you a little bit of confidence that you can get in there and, and get to a high level quite quickly yeah definitely uh, you know I've been teammates with Sasha Fenestras in the past uh, I've raced against Jake Hughes uh, in Formula 2 for a couple of years uh, you know I know that uh, I know what I'm capable of I know that I can be fast but uh, Formula E is not only about being fast so there's a lot of things that I, I need to learn uh, you know I need to make sure that I have a, my my mind open uh, to a lot of new things, especially the race management is something that's all going to be very new to me. So it's about how I can adapt. Uh, you know, I quietly back myself. I don't really say too much out uh, in the open, but uh, you know, I'm quietly confident that I can go up against the, the best drivers in the world and uh, give them a run for their money. You've had some decent success in, in street circuits. You've raced at Macau, you've raced at Poe. Um, we've been talking about some of those experiences over lunch. I mean, that's a part of motorsport you enjoy. Was that a key uh, pull to come to this championship and, and show people what you could do? Yeah, you definitely. You know, uh, in my mind, I always wanted to continue driving single-seaters. Uh, and, you know, Formula E was a great opportunity for me. You know, all drivers here are professional. If you, like you mentioned earlier, if you look at the scale of drivers, you know, from uh, all 20 of them, you probably wouldn't want to be any of their teammates going up in junior formulas. So, you know, all of them are good. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, Formula E was uh, the best option for me and is the best option for my future. So I think it's going to be an important year for me. Uh, you know, if I want to stay in this championship for a long time, I need to show people that I belong here. And you mentioned it a little bit, and Jake Dennis, you've been teammate too. I know you've known a lot of the drivers, including Max Gunter, who's going to be your, your new teammate. Um, there's a sort of feeling, it's like a sort of a, you know, a sort of brotherhood in Formula E in a, in a sense. So away from the track, everybody's pretty, um, pretty genuinely, friend, from a friendship point of view, they all get on quite well, but obviously it's a different matter in the white heat of, a, of an E-Pri. I mean, is, is that an attraction as well? Formula 2 is a different kind of um, 
a different kind of setup in a sense, isn't it? Because everybody is completely focused on trying to get onto the F1 radar. Are you, are you sort of feel? Have you felt that? Because you've been in both. You've been in Formula E paddock as well. Is that something that you sort of feel and 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 think is a, a genuine trait of this championship? Yeah, I do believe that they're, they have their own differences. Uh, you know, also in Formula Two, we're all pushing ourselves and trying to go to Formula One. Uh, in, in the end, you have a teammate, but you're not really working for your teammate or, or trying to help him out. While, you know, in Formula E, you're driving for a manufacturer, driving for a team. So, uh, you know, the team comes ahead of your priorities. So it's important to to know this kind of stuff, especially now I'll be starting my professional journey. So uh, there are differences. I can see a lot of the drivers do get along quite well with each other. They have a lot of respect for each other away from the track. And yeah, of course, when you go on track, then you kind of forget about your friendships and, and who's who. But... Yeah, uh, you know, I'm not the type of guy to make too many enemies normally. I get along well with everyone. But uh, yeah, once we're on track, then uh, we're all, uh, all out there to race against each other. And final one, Jan, you've, you've spent some time looking at the opposition from the Mahindra garage really last season. What, what did you notice about Maserati MSG? You know, they when, when they were competitive, they looked like a genuine race-winning proposition. They got that victory with Max Gunter in Indonesia. Do you sense that once you bed yourself in and you get a bit bit of experience that, that you can achieve something similar in terms of getting right to the, the top of the field? Yeah, honestly, uh, of course, I'm a rookie and I'm, I'm new to the championship, but, uh, you know, I need to do well. I want to do well. Uh, if you want to have a future in Formula E or in racing, you know, you need to perform. Performance is the main thing. So uh, I'll do all, all the prep I can behind the scenes. You know, I'll work on uh, everything I have to. I don't want to put a number on it or what I expect for myself, but I do expect myself to be fighting well, fighting at the front, uh, you know, especially in the second half of the season after I get some experience under my belt. So, yeah, uh, you know, consistently scoring points and fighting at the sharp end towards the end of the year, I think would be a good realistic goal. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So Sam, nice little trip to Monaco, a little winter warmer there. Well, it's not quite winter. It feels like it, the weather we've been having today. Um, what's the premises like? Reassuringly expensive, I would imagine. <laughs> it's really interesting because it's it's sort of not not hidden away, but it's on a it's on a 
a road above sort of Sandovot. So if you imagine between Sandovot and Casino, it's sort of on that um, on that sort of top street there. Very, very swish place. Um, they've only moved in, so they're still putting some of the, the places that uh, the teams and the, the groups within the organisation are going to be. Uh, James Rossiter's Churchillian Suite still needs a, a few few additional trophies. I sort of had a little joke with him on that one. But yeah, no, it's a, it's a nice facility. Uh, very, um, yeah, very, very sort of, not not bijou, but very everything sort of quite sort of close. There's no massive open plan um, style, which I think a lot of design offices still have these days. But the sim, very impressive. Um, both Deruvala and Max Gunter were using the sim that day. And um, yeah, as with every modern Formula E team, though, there's no seven-post rigs, there's no wind tunnels. It's not your traditional racing team setup. There's not a huge assembly area. It, it is a very Formula E way of going racing because, as we know, the um, the true art of Formula E is all in the software and the, and the clever systems that they have. So, yeah, it's, um, it was interesting to see up at close quarters. And I think I'm the first, I was the first guest, I think, that's been there. So, yeah, nice uh, nice invite from, from Lizzie Brooks there who uh, does a great job on the PR. So there's no museums there full of 250Fs, MC12s and that weird bi turbo thing they ran in the European touring cars in the in the mid eighties. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. I was trying to think of the driver who, who was in that. I can't remember his name now, but yeah, that's that's very obscure. But no, there's uh, they haven't got their their trophies in yet. I think I think they get replicas and, and Maserati keep the the originals. So I think they got that the right way around. Um had a little joke that there might have been a little sort of um, bunker sort of graveyard of some of the wreckage from early in the season because there was a whole heap of that, wasn't there? But no, I mean, it's, it is um, the, the, the driver in the loop simulator is such a powerful tool for Formula E and they spend, I joked with uh, Jehan actually that he'll be spending most of his uh, coming weeks and some months in the, um, over the course of next season too. So he was, um, yeah, he was looking as though he was knuckling down already, getting to know everybody, trying to hit the ground running once he gets to Valencia. So um, you mentioned Jahan then. Uh, so he's their new driver. Um, four seasons now, I think, in, in Formula 2, four or five race wins. I think it's four race wins, uh, lots of podiums. He's been a sort of front runner without being a championship challenger, 24 now. So I a good move for him into Formula E. Yeah, I think there was some inevitability for for Jehan to make a, a different turn in his career, and I think when you look at the alternatives or the options that a driver such as Jehan has, there's there's obviously IndyCar, which is um, probably oversubscribed, isn't it? With with drivers, um, there's a fair few that have come over from Europe in in recent seasons. Tom Blomqvist, obviously, ex of this parish of the former E parish, is there. Felix Rosenqvist has been a race winner over in IndyCar. Um, endurance racing. I spoke to Johan a little bit about endurance. He, he fancies it. He, I think later in his career he would look at that. Um, but he is—he's is, he's a big lad. You know, he's tall. He's his frame. He's sort of the Andre Lotterer style of um, build, let's say. So I think actually this kind of racing will will suit him in some respects. But he's always quite. Um, quite aware of his um of his size when he goes racing but i think once once he gets into the driver in the loop simulator as i said and once he gets out there testing track testing and gets some miles under his belt he's had a minimal testing with mahindra last year just did the 
Berlin day. And I think he may have done some straight line testing and lots of sim testing with Mahindra. But yeah, I mean, from what I've seen of him in um, Formula 2, he's... He's been there or thereabouts on occasion, hasn't he? I mean, it was always going to be difficult, I think, with with MP Motorsport this season in his final campaign at that level. Um, but you know, he's still got a few races to go there, hasn't he? I think, and he he could um, he could still improve on. I think his thirteenth position at the moment in in Formula Two. But he had some he had some highlights. He he, he won a number of races um, in his F two career, especially with with Carlin. I think was his most successful season um so yeah wealth of experience i think he's the right age to come into formula e at the minute and you know he soaked up a lot of interesting information last year just being at the track i mean we we spoke to i spoke to oliver Rowland actually he was in a different scenario wasn't he um who was watching at home but even watching at home and and speaking to other drivers and just absorbing what was going on in the paddock a bit is is very helpful He's 24 years old. I think, will that make him the youngest driver? I should have done my homework on this. I think he's probably the youngest driver. Tictum's just a bit older than him, I think. So, born in 1998, Andrew, isn't that uh, depressing when you hear of drivers born, um, you know, when uh, when we were well, we were getting old back in the late 90s, but that's the way oh, it is. Worse than that, I, I was watching a Moto3 race, and one of the guys on the front row was born in 2005. Dear God. Yeah, I, I, I really had to sort of like, that can't be true. And it's like, no, it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, depressing. But yeah, I, I mean, he was, you know, he, I think absorbing and understanding everything that goes on in Formula E is one thing, but putting it to practical use, A, in the simulator, and then with a program, understanding all the systems, understanding the what goes on in the dash and, and all the all the feedback and all the communication that he'll have to go through with his engineers, uh, Maserati and his side of the garage is, is going to be a real tough is baptism of fire time. But those four days in Valencia are going to be uh, pretty crucial for him. I think, I think that will be the, um, the real first uh, stepping stone for him to get properly embedded in formery. But the good, the good news for him is that, Maserati MSG went really well and historically Venturi have gone, gone quite well in Valencia certainly did do last season and he's got a really good gauge in, in Maximilian Gunter who had arguably his best season in Formula E last season or certainly 50% of it so yeah, yeah I the, think the part uh, two very good yeah yeah I think it's a team I mean not in transition but you know I think the deal with Maserati was obviously on the face of extremely good in terms of a manufacturer coming into the championship. But of course, remember, Maserati isn't what you call a bona fide manufacturer in the sense that it builds its own powertrain because it uses exactly the same hardware as the DS automobiles manufacturer. They've proved that they're a race-winning proposition. As James said in that interview, the tough times really made the team last season. And I think if they can keep some continuity in their engineering sphere um then they can get some some good results next season will they win a race They're capable i think gunter's capable i think it'd be too much to ask for the Ruvel in his first season oh for the first season um that's, yeah that's but you know if if jayhan can do have flashes of form one lap pace and, and have some good races and sort of look at equaling what sasha fenestras and, and jake hughes did in their 
rookie seasons as the only rookie in the championship, by the way, for next season, then I think that will be a good, um, a good season for him. As James Rossiter said, when he talked about his aims and objectives, when I asked him, you know, that's pretty similar to, to what I've just said. I, I, I you know, I, I don't, I don't see Deruvela, uh going in there and doing instantly what Hughes and, um, and Fenestras did because that was the start of a new rule set. This is the second year and they've got a season experience. So I think if he can get a bunch of points and, and get some consistency in his performances, that that's probably as much as can be asked for as a rookie in this second season of Gen 3. Now, when we recorded our previous podcast, we weren't anticipating this move happening, although the magic of editing, we were able to look wise after the event. Um, but this has sent some sort of ripples uh, waves, tsunamis through the various driver markets. So bring us up to speed on what's going on. So Mortara, uh, who was displaced by this, but he, it's not going to be a free agent for very long. No, he's not. And, and this is probably the last big act in this extraordinarily long driver market, silly season, whatever you want to call it. This has been going on since the start of the year, really. Um, the big initial move was Nick Cassidy. That obviously triggered Sam Bird moving to Neon McLaren. And then we had the kind of independent moves with Andretti. Uh, the Envision situation to replace Cassidy was taken by Robin Fryans returning to his team. Oliver Rowland returned to his old team with Nissan. This Mahindra stroke Maserati axis, which was essentially triggered really by two events, one Oliver Rowland um, parting company or whatever phrase you want to use it, if you're polite, with uh, with Mahindra back in the end of May. And then Ed Ed Maltara's move after after six seasons with that Venturi stroke Maserati MSG um, squad. So what what has happened is that Edo has, has moved on. He did have a year left on his contract with Maserati MSG. That negotiation went on quite a long time to um, step away from that contract. And he will drive for Mahindra next season. Joining him, which I think has surprised a lot of people, as a little bit Daruvula's signing to Maserati MSG did, a lot of people were telling me that Drogovic was going to sign and race for Maserati MSG, but that never seemed a realistic possibility because of Felipe's insistence on sort of hanging on to um, to his Formula One aspirations, as James Ross, James Ross alluded to when I talked to him. But going back to Mortara, he clearly wanted more Formula E racing. Um, he's won races. He doesn't have a lot left to prove other than to be a, a real consistent title challenger, which he almost was in 2022. So he's done a deal with Fred Bertrand at Mahindra. And the fact that Nick De Vries is joining him I think is the big surprise. De Vries had talked to many teams, including Andretti and Nissan uh, previously. And it looked like it was going away from a return of Nick De Vries, the uh, 2021 champion. Um, But it had a late twist very recently. And those negotiations with Mahindra started to get very serious. And and I've I've got some theories about this because Tony Ross, uh, who's the ex-Valtteri Bottas and Nico Rosberg engineer, who was a real technical pillar for Mercedes EQ's title successes with De Vries and Van Dorn last season, is working as a consultant for that team. And I think that would have been a very big pull for Nick De Vries to, to sign that contract with Mahindra, which just to put a banner over it is going to be 
pretty much short-term pain and hopefully for Fred Bertrand and Mahindra some long-term gain with that because with the set homologation they have pretty much the same car as last well, season and as the, we know yeah the same car competitive. which was the worst car yes so the the team that had the worst car on the grid has got a former champion and a, a multiple race winner who's challenged for the championship it is like yeah a, a, an unbelievable change in circumstance i mean the, the, a mortara de Vries lineup there is you, you wouldn't have even imagined it three weeks ago we just need bruce Forsyth to say didn't they do well <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh, we we say now we're all i mean <laughs> um <laughs> that yeah and, and they have done well and it's um obviously to the detriment of Lucas de Grassi. So what's happening to Luca then? Now, you know, the, the doy end of, of the series, the original uh, driver behind it all. Um, there's only one seat available, as far as I'm aware, and that's back to where it all began with apt. So is, is that going to happen? Yeah. How apt? How apt? Hey. <laughs> uh, yeah. Surprise. <laughs> we haven't done that before. He, um, I, there's an inevitability that Lucas de Grassi will join Nico Muller at Apt Cooper next season. It's not happened as of recording this. It's not happened, but I'm told that they are obviously talking and that a deal is likely to be agreed between the two. It makes all kind of sense. Lucas actually knows the car inside out and put some very good performances in last season. But from a morale point of view, and I think just in terms of um, Lucas being in a position that he's not been in that often, have been in a very uncompetitive position, package um it might just be better for him to be in a team that he knows inside out and has tasted success with before so this this whole maneuvering from the mahindra stroke out and link to the maserati msg i think pretty much everyone's a winner um everyone should get a drive but in a sort of you know in a in a real musical chairs way and i think well it feels like everyone's managed to get an upgrade how is that possible yeah, it is. It's, uh, it seems to have all worked out. It's like one of those puzzles, isn't it, with the squares that you used to play and they used to try and get all the squares. To, what is it? It's kind of a Tetris thing, isn't it? And it all seems to have worked out. I mean, the driver managers and the negotiators and the lawyers and the team principals have been working overtime on on this. I think, um, I think team principals such as uh, James Barkley, who got their deals done early, and Ian James, to some extent, will be sort of looking on quite amused at some of the frantic action that's been going on in the last few months. But ultimately, it's pretty good for the championship. From my point of view, my opinion, you've got an ex-champion returning. You're retaining a champion with his old team. So you've got a nice homecoming story there. And you've got a rookie. You know, we, we were looking at one stage of not having a rookie in the championship for the first season ever. And now Daruvala's here. Um, he is, he, you know, he's not the highest profile rookie, let's let's face it. But the fact is, he's a rookie. And you know, people were saying the same about Jake Hughes next season. He's now an established driver who has, has achieved in Formula E. So there's no reason Daruvala can't do something similar. If you were a proven race winner at F2 level, that is, that is easily you know, of high enough standing to be a competitive um, Formula E racer. I think so. I'd say so as well. And so I think there's, the, it would have been nice to have Drogovic in. Personally, I'd have liked seeing Felipe Drogovic in as a, a former F2 champion. I would actually, in the wider context, like to see more junior young drivers taking a chance, you know, going, taking that crossroads early because 
out of the bunch of 20 Formula 2 drivers, and okay, there's there's some there's some chaff at the end. We won't name any names, but we know that there are some big-time pay drivers in F2 who, who haven't achieved anything. But actually, you know, a good 14 to 15 drivers there are capable of being extremely successful career racing drivers. But quite naturally, in some of their cases, they are clinging on to the F1 dream. However, the chances and the percentage of them getting that dream are extremely slim. So I think it would be nice for more drivers in their sort of second year of Formula 2 who are winning and are successful to look at it and say, well, you know, my chance of getting to Formula 1 is so slim uh, why not strike out early and, and go and uh, make a big career for yourself in, in Formula E? Um, maybe I'm being naive in that and, and dismissing the F1 dream too much and been a bit cynical, but you know the, the odds are stacked against the majority of those drivers, aren't they? Unless they unless they really um, unless they really dominate a championship. No, no, with I, no, no I agree. And, I, and in fact, I was I was slightly surprised that at 24 he's going to be the youngest. I you think there would be more sort of. 22, 21, 22 year olds who were chancing their arm there, having seen how someone like Mitch Evans um, has uh, carved out an amazing niche for himself now. I mean, you know, he's he's a, a, a very well paid career racing driver now. And I think the, the, his timing of sort of jumping off of that junior single seater ladder was inspired. Yeah. And of course, the, you know, the, the, the what ifs and the, um, regrets and they all have regrets that they didn't get to Formula One. It's just the way it is, and I think oh, it's just motor racing. It's it's always interesting talking to Verne or Buemi uh, who got a chance in Formula One, um, but then you know when you occasionally you speak to Evans or De Costa, who absolutely should have got a chance at Formula One. Both of those drivers should have got a a crack at F one at least, but they never did. So that's a different perspective isn't it and and that will play on your mind for as long as you live i mean it's just naturally will but it dissipates over time and especially it especially helps when you have success in another formula and you carve a good niche out for yourself so um, if you can do that uh, if you can go from f2 and on the cusp of f1 to immediately achieving been a high achiever in formula e which is one of the toughest disciplines in racing um and one of the most concentrated talent pools as well then I think that's a healthy place to be, isn't it? I, 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 I would imagine the satisfaction from winning a Formula E champion, and I know this for a fact because it's the first question I always ask, or I ask Nick de Vries and Van Dorn and, and John-Eric Verne. It is, it is a supreme level of achievement, and they feel it, and, um, and they revel in it, and they enjoy it, and, and so they should. Right, so uh, those of you who are regular listeners will remember in the last episode we threatened to do our highlights of the season but as we sort of ground through the team by team thing like Cliff Forbin making a break back in the day um we uh we never quite got round to, to it for several editorial reasons we decided to uh, uh call time on the podcast before we ran out of tape um but uh, we've got uh we've got some bits and pieces that we're going to go through now so have you got your answers at the ready Sam I have and no doubt some of them will be the same so I've got I've got a few decoys so you you go first we're going to start with race of the season I think aren't we Let's do it. You go first. Right. So, I mean, obviously there were some criticisms over the course of the year about the way the peloton racing played out and whatever, but I think there is a time and a place for that. And to me, the the way it worked absolutely brilliantly was at Sao Paulo. I thought that was, that was such 
you know, if I want a bit of tension and drama and not really knowing what's going on, going right down to the flag. So to have those sort of three cars there, but separated by less than a second or just slightly over a second, I can't remember what the final thing was now, was was just brilliant. And and from the time when I worked informally, there was always this, you know, uh, idea, desire uh, of getting the Brazil race on, but for whatever reason, and never just one, multiple, multiple reasons it didn't happen. So for that event to, to finally happen and for it to have such a good um, bit of action on the track, I thought was, uh, yeah, a real highlight. That's good. I, I enjoyed Sao Paulo. It's good to be there. And actually, you know, I spent a day looking around the city after the after the Ypres and um, you hear all these horror stories about it and this, these sort of grim tales, but I, I, I loved it. I thought it was the downtown area was, was beautiful and it's, it's a really nice uh, city centre. Uh, I, I was struggling to choose between Hyderabad and Cape Town and eventually I went for Cape Town. And the reason I went for Cape Town, which was a segue into the best overtake, obviously. Uh, well, which we I'm, probably have agreed on this. Though. I think we probably have. <laughs> I've got a few little cameos as well. But I, I just thought Cape Town was that really nice mix of pot boil attention towards the end of the race. The, the energy saving was, okay, it was minimal compared to Portland and, and Berlin and, and those crazy races. But there was a, there was still an element of that. And I just loved the circuit. I thought it was a terrific circuit. Those fast sweeps on the on the, at the back, and it just had, you know, you have the sense of being at an event. The ocean was just literally, you know, part almost part of the runoff, and some it was so close in some cases. And I'm really um, gutted I didn't go. I'm de- definitely will be there next season. Well, let's hope it's on. I mean, that's that's yeah. one for a future Sam's calendar update. But um, yeah, it's not confirmed yet. Should be uh, early October, hopefully. But I just thought that it was a dramatic backdrop. You know, you had the you had the Atlantic Ocean so close. You just had the sense it was an event. The crowd was was up for it. Um, good smattering of sporting celebs there, and it felt like it was brewing to it to a great event and um yeah and the race delivered you know i it was such a quick track i mean that back straight and the, those kinks where the, the sort of well it's more than a kink where mortara went off in qualifying it was really really ballsy stuff out there and it was just a delight to see it and also you know we go to monaco and everyone loves monaco and it okay delivers a great race in formulary year in year out but what really great with me is how smooth that track is now Mm. it is a shadow of its former self so when you go to somewhere like cape town which has got the drain covers and it's got the cambers and it's got the bumps and it's got the sort of slightly gnarly effect you know it just challenges the drivers and the team so much so you know when somebody wins it in the style that da costa win it it just feels a bit more special so segueing on to best overtake i'm guessing like me you're going for that da costa move uh improbable move on jev at Cape Town. Well, this is a route, isn't it? I mean, how can you yeah. consider anything else? I mean, it, it. You know, I remember speaking on the on the cast we did after that race, and I, I thought, have I gone a bit over the top? Because I think I said it was <laughs> a bit more. You know, it, to me, it felt like an even better Mansell on PK at Stowe in '87. And okay, after oh no, it's, thought, it's, it's, it's it's definitely better because it. it, it it's it's for a bit of track where he genuinely didn't expect to be overtaken or didn't even think it was possible to be overtaken there. Yeah, I just came to the conclusion that actually it was one of the best moves I've ever seen in, in racing. Yeah. It was just the fact that it was Vern as well, and Vern is such a hard guy to get past. 
and it wasn't a genuine, you know, it wasn't as if cost the Costa had two percent more energy. Okay, he marginally was in better shape, but it wasn't about that. It was just about positioning his car, selling a dummy, and just by the finest margin making it through. And I, I'll say it again, I walked the track, which is a rarity for me. You know, I occasionally go for a constitutional, um, and and I went. I went through that and I thought that this is, this is a hairy bit of track. You know, this is quick and it's, it's like a sweep, but walls either side. I mean, it was fast and I don't think the camera did it justice. Cause I think they did it from the helicopter initially mm. and then they missed a slight part par- portion of it because of the sort of offset with the cameras. But when you see it from the onboard, that is a that is a supreme manoeuvre. And when Jean-Marie Fern acknowledges it after the race and says, you know, holds his hand up and says, you know, he deserves that, you know it's good because uh, Vern doesn't give those sort of platitudes often. Um, and I walked back from the media centre to the pit with Antonio afterwards and I can tell you he was high as a kite. He was high as a guy <laughs> after, you know, I'm surprised he didn't go to dope, doping control straight away after that because he was wired and rightly so because he pulled off the kind of dream of every driver, which is to win a race in that style. And and that's why we love this sport, isn't it? It was, it was just magnificent. Uh, one of the best races I've seen. Yeah. I think that was the icing on top of the cherry on the, on the cake was the fact that uh, it was for the win. You know, if that had been a move for third place, it still would have been absolutely phenomenal. But the fact it was for the win just elevates it to that next level. It's absolutely superb. A little mention for Oliver Rowland's opportunistic move, and I think it was Verline at Hyderabad. As they came around the hairpin, there was a bit of a schmozzle, and Ollie sent one down. It was, it, I think it was just captured, like the end of it. But um, I spoke to Oliver about that after the race, and that, and that was a real good one. Um, and from the sublime to the ridiculous, Andrew, uh, Roberto Mary on Jake Hughes at Excel, one of the most, how can I put this, boneheaded efforts of overtaking I've ever <laughs> seen. Bit, bit strong, but, you know, look at it and you'll understand what I mean. Um, yeah, he, he got a barrage of brummy expletives after that one, and, and rightly so. That was, uh, yeah, that was a special move. Right, surprise of the season. I'll I'll, I'll flow with that because you know, Roberto Mary rocking up it in Mahindra was surprising enough. I mean, if you do a sort of uh, name Spanish drivers in F one, he he's the one you've forgotten. Um, but just in general, how bad Mahindra were, you know. The facilities they got there, fantastic. I've been around there. Lucas coming in and uh, and with him, with him and Roland, it looked like a really strong. And then at the first race of the season, you know, the miracle of Mexico. But the the rate at which that unraveled, culminating obviously in uh, withdrawing the cars from the from the Cape Town race on uh, safety grounds, just uh, I'm genuinely surprised that in season nine of Formula E that it's possible to get things that wrong. Yeah, it was um, it was pretty desperate. Uh, I mentioned in the last race, uh, the last podcast, sorry, the race that really stands out for me of how bad it was. The event was Rome, where it was just, yeah, I mean, you know, literal car crash, really. I mean, Lucas ended up in the wall, not by his own volition, but everything up until that point was just a disaster for the team. Um, wasn't all bad. They did have some performances, and, and Lucas especially got some, good races out of that car but yeah it, it, it was a surprise um we talked to didn't we in the last episode about about how that all panned out but for me it, it the surprise of the season 
and it's it's quite a complex one, but I'll keep it really short, was just how good the two rookies were, Jake Hughes and Sasha Fenestras, and how they got one over the more experienced drivers initially. Certainly in the first half of the season, they were right up there and and got pole positions and, and, and fought for top placings. Um, and in, in the first season of a rule set, maybe we shouldn't be that surprised actually because they were kind of unpolluted by Gen 2, let's say, if we can phrase it like that. So they came to it with fresh eyes and, and, and that just told on track. And I, I just thought that was great. It, it had a real buzz about it, with, with especially with Jake at Diria. I thought was you know one of the performances of the season that that lap he got for pole, and and then Fenestras and Hughes going for pole at, at Monaco, and ironically Hughes made a mistake at the chicane, and then Fenestras um, took pole, but then had it snatched away from him on a on a technicality, a power over spike. So that was quite nice to see. It's always good to see rookies come and and sort of. Uh, shake things up a bit and they certainly did that for the first half not so much the second half but um, I'm pretty sure that actually from the start of 24 that that they can reprise that a little bit so uh, event of the season um, I I was going to say Cape Town but that's probably you know you've waxed lyrical enough about that anyway and and as I was thinking of this it's like actually I'm not sure it was I think it, it gets forgotten about because it has been the only sort of ever present but what they do in Berlin now, how that Tempelhof event works is absolutely fantastic. There's genuinely almost F1 style, but in a friendlier, more um, welcoming way of having proper hospitality. There are a lot of brands that are activating in really cool and engaging ways. Cooper had this mega sort of light show thing that you could walk through and experience their uh, their cars in that sort of really interactive and engaging way there's genuinely places where you can get something to eat and sit down with a beer which is uh, one of these things at, at um, racing tracks that seems to have gone out of fashion that really really needs to come back right that is part of the experience you don't want to just be stuck in a grandstand um baked in in the sun for hours on end um and because it's been going on for so long there just to see how it's evolved and remember going in that first season with a track with 17,000 hairpins or whatever it was and it was it was all a little bit um sort of sketchy to what it is now which is a really well-oiled machine and uh, and i think it yeah it's a it's a great great little event I agree. I love going to Berlin. I mean, it shouldn't work, should it? An old airfield no. <laughs> on the outskirts. Well, not the outskirts. It's quite near the city centre, but, yeah, but it's still. Got a tube station. It's great. Yeah. I mean, it shouldn't work, but it it does. It always delivers. I mean, it is, however, the sort of place that when it's grey and, and, and yeah. wet is is particularly grim. But when the sun It's not shining, necessarily the most photogenic. I will, I will grant you that. No. No, makes Cleveland look like uh, Road America. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I I do enjoy going there, and it and it does offer up great races, and it was very memorable this year. I mean, we've almost forgotten, haven't we, about the uh, the the nutters coming onto the track? Um, but that was that was an interesting time when the that's uh, all part of the uh, great <laughs> all part of the entertainment. I mean, Christ, yeah. I mean, that, you know, that was that was very peculiar bit of a race where that where that happened. But I, I would say I, I actually chose, I did go for Cape Town in the end, but I want to give a mention. We've I've talked enough about Cape Town, but I just love, and it's a personal thing, I just love London. I love the XL. I love that just unique inside, outside bedlam, at least at one of the races, in terms of what was going on on the track. 
but also just the efficiency of, of going to a facility, which is permanent, but obviously modified, and the atmosphere, which is a genuine family day out. And, you know, I'm a bit biased because my family go and they will go all the time now. It's an annual event for them. And they're very much not racing fans, really. But they're slowly becoming racing fans through this very fan-friendly event at London Excel. And I think it's working superbly. I speak to um, Damien North, who's part of the um, senior executive team at Excel. And I speak to him every year and the plans they have for the next year and the year after are just exceptional. And this thing's only going to get bigger and better with more people, more entertainment, more unique initiatives around this these two races. And, and the fact now that it's a finale to the season, it's just the most perfect finale. It's the closest thing that Formula E's got to what Adelaide used to be for Formula for Formula One, albeit with much shitter weather, obviously. <laughs> not not that that matters with half of it been inside that much, but I, I just think it's just a perfect way to end the season. And there's a genuine buzz. You know, there was there was activations in Carnaby Street. There was a big Nissan thing going on in Covent Garden. Envision were on the one show. Blue Peter were there. It's like, it's just a really big buzz around, around it. I just hope one year... It's not on when a Grand Prix is on because although that's, you know, not a big, big thing, it'd just be nice for it to be a sole focus of the industry because there's so many great stories to tell, so much going on in, in that weekend that I think it, it just deserves a bit more of a spotlight on it than it's got at the moment. Yeah, hopefully they won't schedule it when I'm on holiday next time as well. That would uh, <laughs> that that would help. I also, um, I, I agree that it is a great event, but I think I'm holding off because I can see the potential of how it could be even better. Um, you've got that um, amazing facility there. And I don't think they've fully exploited what they could do inside as well as outside just yet. I, I, you know, it's good that it's got a, a presence on the calendar now and, it, and it's become established. But I think what it could be is even more exciting than where it currently is. Yeah, agree. So uh, disappointment of the season. I, I, I had a few of these, um, but I, and I wasn't, uh, and, I, and I want this to be taken in the right way because ultimately it is irrelevant and it's more the quality of the race that obviously sees it out, but it is the lap times. You know, the third generation car came along with this big hiking power and a a radical looking car and whatever, only to really be very little quicker than the car that we did replace. Now I know the change of tire manufacturer and that Hankook were always going to play it uh, conservatively because they had to because there was more to lose than they they had to gain by trying to push the boundaries there but I would have loved to have seen if not quite some of the bombastic uh, reductions in lap time that the former CEO might have been promising but at least a solid three to four maybe five seconds a lap quicker than than where they ultimately ended up because um, they're really tricky to drive when they're on the edge of those cars and you can see them before the the heat's got into the tires and they're moving around and i think the racing would be even even better if we could just see a little bit more of that yeah i mean you know you've you've pretty much said what i was going to say there vita so <laughs> thunder stolen this first thunder stolen <laughs> yeah um i i agree with everything you said there and um I, I, what i'll do is I'll, I'll sort of spin it around a little bit it, you know, we're going to go on to the flashpoint of the season, so I'm going to kind of cut what in half what I'm going to say for that. 
Oh, I but, think that's not on my list. You can have that one. Eh? Oh, I just made that one up as usual. <laughs> I, I think, I think actually, in terms of the car and the Gen Three car, um, there were eventual good points of it, but you had to look pretty hard to find them. However, having said that, a lot of what we talk about in these podcasts is about how great the racing was, or the majority of the racing was good, not all of it. And I think it gave a, a full smorgasbord of of different styles of racing and a new one in terms of this Kirin or whatever you want to call it, Peloton uh, effect of racing. But I think actually when you look at the car and the lap times, as you mentioned, the sense that actually Formula E now has kind of slipped behind the technology advancement, I think, of what's going on in automotive. Yes, they inform each other, but automotive has far out-accelerated what has been evidenced in Formula E at the moment. And you can talk about motors and lots of boring stuff about the the ins and outs and the internals of, of what they have in the powertrains now. But that, the fact is that actually the, the relevancy to the road is still there but we're not showing the we're not giving the wow factor we're not making people's jaws drop open when they see these cars yes they're impressive yes the efficiency is incredible great stories we're breaking but whenever i speak to some drivers i mean notably degrassi i spoke to dan tictum actually and he's a big believer in this that the acceleration should be completely explosive you remember last summer sorry summer before last um at Goodwood, and there was the, you're going to have to jog my memory, the name of the car, the McMurty. Oh, the McMurty, yeah. With, the McMurty. I mean, yeah, that thing's insane. It was and and the, the, amount of, record up there. the amount of press and the amount of wow factor in that from the start line to the first corner, which was basically in the blink of an eye, Max Chilton was at the corner just after he started. Why can't Formula E have that? Why can't there be a literal drag race to the first corner, which just blows your mind. And I think once that comes on, which will probably be with Gen 4, and when we look at the tenders for Gen 4, that is coming, no doubt. But, you know, can they make it even more spectacular? I had a good chat with DaCosta at, I can't remember where, probably, I think it was Sao Paulo. And we talked about, well, you know, visually, where's the where's the visual wow factor of these cars you know they didn't get the halo lights to work all season or pretty much all of the season and it's so disappointing you know why not put some titanium blocks on the car and get a you know different colors of sparks on occasion you know even if it's just in qualifying i don't know or at the start of the race there must be the technology to get these you know these jaw-dropping reactions that everybody loves now because everything's so instant on social media. And I don't think Formula E is doing that enough. And I hope they do it for, for gen four and people scream gimmick and they'll scream, Oh, you know, it's just another, you know, it's just another marketing thing. Well, so what, you know, if it puts Formula E to the next level and it gets people talking, then why not do it? You know, it's just a, it's just a no brainer, isn't it? I mean, you've got to do something different. Formula E has always been about something different. So why not, you know, why not go another leap? That's what technology is all about. That's what advancement's all about. That's what getting a better product is all about. So hopefully, 
hopefully that's what they can do in the future and it'd be it'd be great to see and they have a license to do it you know with attack mode fan boost and all those sort of yeah. things because it's a different set out to be a different type of racing it has yeah. a license to do things differently it was never just supposed to be an electric version of how the rest of the world goes racing that that's almost it's almost pointless if that's all it aspires to be and ironically next season with the mandatory flash charging whatever you want to call it attack charge pit stops that they're going to have great you know it's another factor but there is a real danger that that could go the other way and that you could get a big breakup of what we saw last season this great racing and that you'll end up with the field being covered by 45 seconds or laps uh, sorry cars going to lap down that's a real danger for next season when they um, when they administer this this flash charging, this um, sorry attack charge as they call it, so that's got to be really carefully thought about. But for me, the the real sensation of these cars is the acceleration, and I, you know again irony at Portland. You and I were watching the start of that race and thinking, are they actually accelerating? Because obviously they were <laughs> saving energy going to the first corner. You know they're, they're breaking at the three hundred meter board or whatever. I mean, yeah, I, you know is that the right impact for people to when they switch on their tv and see something new to see drivers pussyfooting around you know the first 30 percent of the race i don't know it's got its place but for me what grabs people's attention and arcing back to the mcmurty phenomenon is that just raw wow power um so i think that needs to be looked at much more and then the visual spectacle too well, you've got a flashpoint of the season. I haven't. I wasn't on my list. So I haven't prepared anything. So go for it. Well, <laughs> it it was the it was the crisis at the start. It was just the shape that Gen Three was in. I mean, that was. Oh, you just put this in so you could have a rant about that. I get you. No, I've got that on my system now. <laughs> and uh, you know, I think a lot of people thought, well, you know, it wasn't wasn't as bad as uh, as Smith and others, you know, doomsday scenarios uh, expected. But you know, behind underneath the surface with the legs um, paddling away like a, you know, a, a, an out-of-control pedalo. There was a lot going on under the surface, and we reported a lot of it, what was going on. It wasn't pleasant for the teams and manufacturers in that first phase of the season particularly. It got marginally better, and a lot of the challenges were met, but not all of them. And um, the spare situation was desperate by the end of the season. You know, it was Zombieville at London after that Rome shunt. And the fact manufacturers were literally drawing lots or straws for spare tubs in Rome was both astounding and embarrassing all at once, I think, for a world championship. So that 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 isn't great. Uh, you know, I think they dodged a lot of bullets. They, they got there. It always happens in the racing industry. You know, it's got to be all right on the night. But especially that braking situation, which was a real safety concern, I and many others in the paddock are just, especially the drivers, are just thankful that that no one got hurt. I mean, you know, a couple couple of them ended up in hospital, but thankfully, just just for um, checkups and, and light injuries. But yeah, there, were, there was it, it was it was a scary situation in in those first two races. So what I did have next on my uh, list was comedy movement of the season, um, and. I'm going away from the track and away from the the action for this because uh, I don't go to all the races, so I, I probably haven't got a wide enough uh, uh, knowledge base to do this. But I did go to Portland uh, with you, and I, and this is sort of trying to make light of a, of a, what is ultimately a, a, a terrible uh, situation. So I'm, I'm not I'm not knocking that, but there's a 
there's a real problem uh, with uh, drug, especially fentanyl abuse uh, in Portland. And where we were staying was about a 10 minute walk uh, from the track. But in order to get there, you had to uh, walk through what you had to euphemistically describe as Zombieville. Um, and so Sam and I would uh, recreate our Shaun of the Dead uh, sketch as, uh, as we were making our way there, working out which KLF white labels we would save or Sultan's of Ping 12 inches would be uh, sacrificed for the greater good in order that we had safe passage towards the track and back. And that sort of gallows humour <laughs> really kept me going when actually I was quite worried that we might uh, be attacked or uh, or worse while, uh, while trying to make our way to the circuit. Well, the, the fact you've got Sultan's of Ping into a motorsport podcast is, is truly heroic. And uh, I, I expect you to be that, knighted. Surely. But yeah, I mean, what a what a desperate situation. But like you say, um, it is something that we'll remember for a, for a long time. I've gone for um, a couple very quickly. Jake Hughes's exquisite track walk shunt at Berlin um, was only funny. So this is where it, my knowledge base isn't deep enough. Like, <laughs> well, well, you were there, but you you maybe you maybe. Uh, you were probably on the um, the sponsors' uh, products by then. Uh, some of the teams, um, yeah. He had a shunt uh, literally on a track walk where he tried to um, vault a photographer's hole and caught his head on the debris fence and gashed his head and had to be tended to uh, at the scene. Um, like I said, only funny after we knew he was okay. But I think he had a couple of stitches in his in his head um yeah came back to the paddock looking like paul mcgrath circa 1993 um for all you villa fans out there of which jake is one of course so i'm, I'm sure he'll have a little chuckle um in retrospect about that one um slightly self-indulgent but the one that i remember personally was literally being escorted to the gates of the hyderabad circuit by three goats um which was a a very novel experience. Well, they the Billy Goats Gruff, or I guess you'll pass that level of storytelling <laughs> at home. <laughs> they were they were the the goats of the goats. You know, they 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 were these were thoroughbreds. Um, actually, I, I thought I might have recognised one of them at the hotel buffet a few days later, which was <laughs> which was unfortunate. But um, yeah, I mean that was that was full on India, first time in India for me in the subcontinent, and um, yeah, I don't think you get more uh, you get more. Um, at the at the um at the scene of the the culture than than getting escorted by goats to the track extraordinary scenes but um there you go i've got photographic evidence for it and a little film actually of one of them because when when they got to the gate one of them turned to me as if to say well where's the tip you know they <laughs> they expected some <laughs> kind of nourishment i think once i got there maybe you should post that when uh, when we put the pod up right last one uh what are you looking forward to the most 2024 um for me it's that all kiwi lineup at jaguar uh it's utterly stellar on the face of it they're really good mates known each other grown up together uh, and i'd love to think they can carry that on but when if they're there fighting for the championship it's gonna put that to the absolute test and i can't wait to see it yes yes it, it, it will be special um because Cassidy proved last season that he is, you know, he deserves to be up there and he deserves to be fighting for championships. And the way that he drove some of those races was just exceptional. And yeah, I couldn't agree more. Uh, Evans and Cassidy there. I think if it, if if they work in in unison and harmony, um, it will be a really good season for Jaguar. But how many times have we said that about drivers, even friends before? 
Um, Mr. Hamilton, Mr. Rosberg is just one case study there, but I, I really hope that they do, you know, that there isn't any of that um, on one level. Obviously, on the slightly journalistic level, I hope there's a, little, a bit of needle on occasion. Fireworks, mate. That's what you want and need. Fireworks. <laughs> <laughs> we want to see it. Um, I think Tokyo, the Tokyo E-Prix is a real key moment, like a holy grail for Formula E, a bit like New York City was a few years ago and London has been. It's going to be really interesting to see what happens at the big site area of Tokyo. I was there a few weeks ago for the Fuji WEC race. Sadly, didn't have time to go and see the area, but I know that Formula E staff and the and the TV guys from Aurora have been out there recently doing recce's and so forth. So yeah, a lot of anticipation for that event. Nick DeVries coming back to Formula E is going to be a great story. Um, really looking forward to to that one so yeah lots of lots of stuff to look forward to i notice a category v to b that we've skipped but we'll take a matter of seconds to address which i think you've got a different list to me go on what 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 did i miss shunt of the season but you know there's only one contender for that isn't there uh the (laughs) mother and father of all accidents i'm uh, just pleased no one got hurt but go on yeah of course of course special mention for dan tictum feeding Van Dorn into the wall at Berlin, which was pretty conclusive, comprehensive. I've never seen Stoffel so purple in the face with rage after that. Mind you, that was pretty subtle shade compared to Nigel Beresford, the team manager for DS Penske, who, uh, yeah, I think he was about to trigger a full-on nuclear thermo detonation, actually, after that one. Um, A little cabaret mention, actually, for Van Dorn wiping out Mortara at London, which was the biggest slam dunk penalty I've ever seen in motorsport yet triggered no further action no further Um, action one of the most abject decisions i've ever seen in racing it made maradona's handball look marginal (laughs) (laughs) unbelievable Uh, anyway we've exhausted that 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 note for anyone who doesn't appreciate you know cultural references from the 80s and 90s they probably switched off ages ago anyway (laughs) (laughs) they switched off in the mid 90s And then, well, they never switched on in the first place. Right. Thank you, Sam. Um, actually, all of that's just making me wish that the racing was returning a lot more soon than it is. So we've got a couple more of these special ones. Have we got one before testing or is it after testing? Yeah, we're, we're going we're gonna to have a chat with Oliver Rowland uh, in a couple of weeks. So that'll be out before um, Valencia. And I'm hoping that we'll have a, a good talk to Nick Cassidy, maybe. Uh, I'm not sure whether that's going to be this side or, or the other side of Valencia, but we're going to catch it with Nick too. So, yeah, lots to, lots to look out for. There you go. Well, thank you very much for listening uh, and goodbye. The Athletic.